from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. All right, now we'll turn to our first, our only scripture lesson for this service, which is 1 Chronicles 29, verses 1 through 9. Hear now God's word for you and for me this morning. King David said to the whole assembly, My son Solomon, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great. For the temple will not be for mortals, but for the Lord God. So I have provided for the house of my God, so far as I was able, the gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, and the bronze for the things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, and wood for the things of wood, besides great quantities of onyx and stones for setting, antimony, colored stones, all sorts of precious stones, and marble in abundance. Moreover, in addition to all that I have provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own of gold and silver, and because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. 3,000 talents of gold, of the gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver for overlaying the walls of the house, and for all the work to be done by artisans, gold for the things of gold and silver for the things of silver, who then will offer willingly, consecrating themselves today to the Lord. Then the leaders of ancestral houses made their free will offerings, as did also the leaders of the tribes, the commanders of the thousands and of the hundreds, and the officers over the king's work. They gave for the service of the house of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. Whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord into the care of Jehiel the Gershonite. Then the people rejoiced because these had given willingly, for with single mind they had offered freely to the Lord. King David also rejoiced greatly. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Felt like we needed that to recenter. <laughs> Let us pray. Lord, we wouldn't want it any other way than to see children and their families presenting their children for baptism. It reminds us that you're doing something great in this church. It reminds us of your presence with us. It reminds us of the call you've placed on each of us to follow you. And so I would pray humbly that what I say today would encourage all of us to that end. That we would even be different people than those who came into this sacred space this morning, even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. If you've been with us for the last several weeks, you know that we're in a sermon series in preparation for the launch of our capital campaign. It's called On the Way. Uh, and we've had two uh, discrete texts that have been sort of with us as we've journeyed through this text that Rebecca read 
uh, from 1 Chronicles, and then also a text from uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We're not reading that text today, and I'm also going to, you've been so good and patient with these texts, I'm going to tell you another Bible story today. I'm not going to read it, I'd like to tell it to you, and it comes from the Gospel of Mark, the the second chapter. And in this particular story, Jesus has just returned to the town of Capernaum. Uh, It's a fishing village on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. He's returned there uh, following the launch of his public ministry. In the first chapter of Mark, we see Jesus' public ministry taking many forms and shapes. He's calling disciples. He's casting out demons. He's healing the sick. He's forgiving sins. He's calling people to repentance, calling people to turn around, calling people to prepare themselves to receive the kingdom of God, God's reign and God's rule that was in their midst, that was coming into the world as Christ came into the world. He was preaching and teaching to the amazement of all, especially the religious leaders of the day. In Mark 2, he's Uh, come back to Capernaum, which is sort of his home base of operation. And and he was at a home and he was teaching when all of a sudden the crowds just began to swell and people pressed in on him. Both inside the house and outside the house, a great crowd had gathered. You see, word had quickly spread that Jesus was back in town and his ministry was so compelling that people simply wanted to get close to him. His ministry was so attractive, his teaching was so powerful that people just wanted to be in his presence. Well, not too far from that home, another group of people gathered. And we're not sure how many people there were in that particular gathering, but we do know this. They had a very specific intention in mind. They wanted to bring a paralyzed man to Jesus and, and from this group, from this larger group, four men picked up this man's mat. They picked up this man's mat with him on it, this paralyzed man, and they carried him to where Jesus was. They wanted to get him close because they believed all that they had heard and seen that, that Jesus had the power to heal this one. And so they picked him up and they journeyed to the home. But they, too, couldn't get close. The crowd had swelled too much. They couldn't make their way inside. And so these four men, they they took a risk. They climbed onto the roof while hoisting the paralytic up there with them. And then they carefully removed the the sun-baked mud and the thistle and the reeds and the thatch that made up the roof. And they began to dig through to create a hole that became larger and larger and larger. Now this would have been quite a scene. I would invite you to consider it in your own mind's eye. Jesus is perhaps mid-sentence preaching like this when all of a sudden he looks up and he sees mud starting to fall down from the roof and it lands at his feet and he begins to see four pairs of hands scratching and clawing their way through the sun-baked mud as the hole gets bigger and bigger and bigger, big enough for them to let down a human being to his feet. Jesus, as he's looking up, recognizes the faith of these four men and then looks at the paralytic and says, Child, child, your sins are forgiven. 
Your sins are forgiven. Now there were some scribes, religious leaders, who were sitting there and they were questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak the way he is speaking? Because what he is saying is actually blasphemy. Because only God has the authority to forgive sins. No person has authority to forgive sins. What does he think he's doing? And Jesus perceives that they are thinking such things in their minds. He perceives that they have these thoughts in their hearts. And he asks them, why are you raising these questions? Why are you raising these thoughts? He said, which is easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, stand up, take your mat, and walk? And then he said, to show that the Son of Man, that I have authority to forgive sins, he turned to the paralytic and said, child, stand up, pick up your mat, walk, and go home. And the paralyzed man stood up, picked up his mat, and walked through that crowd on his way to his own home. The crowd was amazed and glorified God, and they all said, we have never seen anything like this. It truly is a remarkable story. Theologically reveals to us that this Jesus is no ordinary man with no ordinary ministry. By claiming the power to forgive sins, he's basically saying that the divine rests in him, that he has authority from God to do such a thing. And that claim, as many of you know, will eventually get him killed. It's also remarkable because it reveals, once again, Jesus' power to heal. Jesus, friends, has the power to make bodies and to make hearts and to make minds and to make souls well. He has the power to say to you and to me, stand up and walk in the world. It's also remarkable to me that this unnamed and unnumbered group of people got involved the way they did. And that they did all that they could do to get this paralyzed man to Jesus. It's remarkable to me that this cohort, this collective, this gathering, and then these four men in particular would do such a thing. Because we don't know if they knew this paralyzed man. Was he a family member? Was he a friend? Or was he a stranger? But what we do know is that this group and these four men in particular were willing to act. They were willing to risk They were willing to sacrifice. They were willing to get their hands dirty. They were willing to be involved in this man's wholeness and healing. Of course, the Christian knows that it is Christ himself who models this type of involvement. We remember each and every week as we gather for worship that God took on flesh in and as the person of Jesus Christ and God got involved in the muck and the mire in the beauty and the grandeur of our lives and in the life of the world. God got involved in forgiving our sins. God got involved in making us whole. God got involved in lifting our shame and our anxiety and our fear. God got involved in sanctifying us So we could live life the way it was meant to be lived. A life filled with joy and purpose and meaning because of what God has accomplished in reconciling us 
to God's self. God got involved in our salvation, not just in this age, but in the age to come, that we don't have to fear death because God got involved. Christ got involved, and Christ got dirty and bloodied and was crucified on a hill called the skull. And God so wants to be involved in the affairs of human history, involved in your life and involved in my life, that God raised Jesus from the dead so that nothing would impede God's movement toward us. God wants to be involved. It's like we're the paralytic in some ways. That Christ himself picks us up on our mat and lowers us into the presence of Almighty God so that God can meet us in mercy and in grace to give us the healing and the restoration and the wholeness we so desperately long for. And so, friends, this morning, I'd invite you to consider what it means to be involved in the work that helps people come into the presence of God? What does it mean for us, individually and as a church, to be part of the work that helps people get to the feet of Christ, that helps people come into the very presence of God? Now, I know the crowd that I'm preaching to uh, this morning. I've been doing it for a little over seven years. I think I know you pretty well. And I know that this is a group, this is a crowd, this is a congregation that's involved in a lot of things. Perhaps some of us would admit that we're involved in too many things. That we've overpromised or overextended or we're spread too thin. In a recent poll, three out of five people, 60% of the people surveyed, have agreed to accomplish more than they actually have time for. Three out of five people have said yes to things that they don't actually have time for. From that same study, 20% of the people say they've reached their limit and cannot be involved in one more thing. 50% of those surveys said that they are moderately stressed. 35% said that they're highly stressed. And 9% said that they are on the breaking point with all that they are involved in and all that is on their plate. There's a real uh, scientifically grounded link that connects overcommitment and burnout. And some within the sound of my voice know that full well. For some, we really are involved in way too much. And it's killing us. It's not lost on me that each and every week I'm preaching to, at best, busy people. And at worst, people who are on the precipice of burnout. People who are on the precipice of taking one more thing that they cannot take on. In these past few weeks, I've I've had to do an audit uh, in my own life, both personally and professionally, of what I'm involved in, what I keep saying yes to, and what I need to start saying no to. I do this not just for the sake of equilibrium or balance, and I want to say that equilibrium and balance are very good things to have in one's life, but that's not the only reason I've been doing this audit. It's also because of my discipleship, of my call to follow Jesus in the world, because I don't want to miss opportunities to be involved in the stuff that God is doing in my life. I don't want to miss the opportunities of what God is doing in the world. 
the opportunities to be involved in, in the things that really do matter, the things that really do make a difference. I don't want such a full or, or over-involved or over-committed schedule that I miss the opportunity to be like those four men who took the time to bring that man to the feet of Jesus. I don't want to be missing those opportunities. I don't want my money to be so tied up with things that really don't matter and miss the opportunity to give in generous ways, the ways that David gave and his commanders gave and his ministers and the tribal leaders gave in the story that Rebecca read for us this morning about the gifts that came to build the temple. You see, I want to be involved in the things that perpetuate and curate and facilitate the love of God. I want to be involved in things that perpetuate and curate and facilitate the love of neighbor and also the love of myself. The things that are generative that remind me that I'm loved by God and I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And that standard is a standard that Jesus gave us. He said the most important commandment that you can follow is this, love God, love your neighbor, love yourself. And that's the plumb line. That's the standard. And I think that's what we ought to use to figure out what is the right work. What's the right priorities? What are the right relationships? What do we need to say yes to? And what do we need to say no to? Is it fulfilling the love of God, the love of neighbor, the love of self? Or is it not? About five or six years ago, I had just wrapped up the typical run of meetings I had set for that particular day. And in front of me were several tasks and issues that needed my attention. And no sooner that I had sat down at my desk, opened up my laptop, that Captain Oates, our chief of security, knocked on my door and said, there is a man here who needs to see a pastor right away. And my first instinct, I'm going to be very honest, my first instinct was, who can I pass him off to? But then I heard myself saying to Captain, sure, just just bring him back. He brought him back into my office. I could tell that there was something heavy weighing on his heart. Something was eating at him. He was nervous. He was in his mid to late 50s. He sat down and he started to cry. And he said, Pastor, I have a warrant out for my arrest. He said, I've been running and running and running. And I am tired of running. I haven't seen my wife, I haven't been home, and I'm at a crossroads. I don't know what to do. And so I listened, and and we talked, and we prayed, and we talked, and we prayed some more. And I asked, what do you feel like God is calling you to do? What do you feel the Spirit is prompting you to do? And through tears, he said, turn myself in, and to make amends to accept the consequences of my crime. And then, when I'm a rele- and, when, and then when I'm released, Lord willing, to go repair the relationship I have with my wife, with my family, and my friends. He asked me to call his wife to let her know what he was going to do, and then he gave me some of his personal belongings that I would pass on to her later that week. And then he asked me to call the police and to have them come to the church. They did. They pulled up on 16th Street. We walked out and we met the officer who was dignified and gracious. 
put him in handcuffs, and I prayed him into the back of the cruiser. A couple of weeks ago, right here in the sanctuary, following the memorial service for Alan Harris, one of the Mother Teresas of our community. After that service, a man came up to me right there, and he said, you don't recognize me, do you? And honestly, he looked familiar, but I, I couldn't place him. And he said, I'm the man who came to you a few years ago who turned himself in on an outstanding warrant. And immediately, I, I just remembered everything. He went on. He said, I was released about 12 months ago. I've, I've landed a full-time job, and I've, I've reconciled with my wife. We're, we're back together. And I've reconciled with friends and I've made amends, and I'm getting ready to retire in a couple of years. We embraced, and I, and I thought to myself, I, I never, ever want to be too busy or stretch too thin where I can't be involved in a moment like that one. Something that really matters that's substantive, that's transformational, that's kingdom-oriented. I never want to be so overcommitted that I can't be committed to the right things. I'll close with this. I know that for some folks, perhaps for many of us, COVID really disrupted your involvement, not just with the church, but your involvement with God, your involvement with faith. And it's so refreshing and so good to see so many of your faces and to feel the sanctuary start filling up and our other worship services filling up. But I'm, but I'm still mindful that for some, there's still a disconnect, there's still a disruption. And there's an outstanding question. For some, is what is my involvement going to look like? in the life of the church moving forward? What is my involvement in my own faith development going to look like moving forward? Because there was a lot of disruption for all of us. And I want to share with you today something that I, that I feel from my head all the way down to my toes, that we as a church are on the precipice of something great. That God, through COVID time, was working on us and forming us and, and shaping us in such a way. And it was hard, but preparing us for something amazing, something wonderful on the precipice of this moment. I even look back, and I said this at the 910 services, I stood on the same stage after uh, unveiling the long-range strategic plan, the campus master plan, standing there in January of 2020 to great enthusiasm and great excitement only to have about six weeks later everything shutting down. And at that time, I was saying, why God? Why? And now looking back at it, I see how God has prepared us for this moment. That God's prepared us for this very time to be involved. I think our campus master plan I think our ministries right now, I think our capital campaign may be just the prompt we all need 
to reimagine or recommit, to step in and to be involved. Because I believe this ministry, this campus plan, this moment in time in our history is a moment worth making room for. It's a moment worth making room for in your heart. It's a moment worth making room for in your wallet. It's a moment worth making room for in your prayer life. It's a project that's going to enhance our capacity to offer radical hospitality to every single person who sets foot on the corner of 16th and Peachtree. It's a project that will enhance our capacity to love and serve in more faithful ways our most vulnerable neighbors. And it will increase our capacity to help people of all ages get to the feet of Jesus so that they would know that they're loved and they're forgiven and that wholeness and restoration can be theirs too. I'm convinced, friends, that this project is worth our time, it's worth our talent, and it's worth our treasure It's worth our involvement. And I believe that by God's grace, this next chapter of our ministry together will reflect the truth that God really does want to be involved with us. And that God wants to be involved in our church. And that God wants to be involved in our city. And that God wants to be involved in our world. May we take the step we need to take to move toward God's involvement so we would be found faithful in this moment of ministry together. May it be so for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the world and all of God's people say, Amen. Friends, we have been given so much and so many of us have responded to that. I encourage you to continue to give to our annual fund to support the ministry and mission of our church. You can do that through the QR code. You can do that through ACH transactions, through stocks and security uh, gifts. There's so many ways. Please continue to support the work of this vital church. I'm thankful and grateful for all that you have stewarded in the service of the gospel and the kingdom of God. Let us wait now on the offertory anthem prepared by our choir.